The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Locutus of Borg, this is Captain William T. Riker of the USS Enterprise. You may speak. We wish to end the hostilities. Then you must unconditionally surrender. We are prepared to meet to discuss your terms. It is unlikely you are prepared to discuss terms. It is more likely that this is an attempt at deception. Come now, Locutus. If Picard's knowledge and experience is part of you, then you know that I've never lied to him. You should also implicitly trust me, is that not so? Picard implicitly trusted you. Then trust me now. Meet to discuss your terms. Discussion is irrelevant. There are no terms. You will disarm all your weapons and escort us to Sector 001, where we will begin assimilating your culture and technology. Mr. Gleason, can you pinpoint the source of the Borg transmission? I can put you within 30 meters of it, sir. Channel open, sir. We would like time to prepare our people for assimilation. Preparation is irrelevant. Your people will be assimilated as easily as Picard has been. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 10th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Trek fans' license plate stirs ire. Assimilate pulled from use after indigenous activist protest read the headline. And upon due consideration, I decided not to just laugh it off because it is no laughing matter, even though it turns out that that's how many are looking at the issue, while others are insisting it's about freedom of speech. Write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all of our past broadcasts. Well, you heard the headline, and here's the article, which was written by Jack Howen on August 1st of this year, and he writes, Is the word assimilate offensive? At issue is a legal battle that has just been launched that pits the right of a Star Trek fan to have it on his license plate against indigenous groups opposed to the word. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms has filed a lawsuit on behalf of Nick Troller, a Winnipeg man whose license plate, Assimilate, that's spelled A-S-I-M-I-L and then the number 8, was rescinded by the provincial government for being offensive to indigenous people. It's another case that pits the charter freedom of expression against new phony right not to be offended, said JCCF President John Carpe, a former Alberta Wild Rose Party candidate. University of Manitoba assistant professor Negan Sinclair called free speech a bogus argument and said that indigenous people are having a very understandable reaction. 
if indigenous peoples feel triggered by a license plate or a sports logo or the name of a historical figure on a building, Canadians would be best served to listen to why indigenous peoples are triggered and to show some care and sensitivity when they express themselves. Canadians don't know their own past. The word assimilate is a grim reminder of past pain inflicted on indigenous communities, said Rye Moran, director of the Winnipeg-based National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. For basically the entirety of this country's history, indigenous peoples have been forcibly assimilated through really extremely destructive means and ways, Moran said. Words like that, meant or not, have an actual impact on many people, end quote. Sinclair encouraged Canadians to reflect on whether their speech was responsible. It's a very privileged position to ignore history. Those of us in the Indigenous community, we live and breathe history every day, end quote. And that's from the National Post. Well, yes, you do live and breathe history every day, quite literally, I think. If you're living in the past, then you're in a dead, unevolving culture that cannot adapt even as the Borg adapt, nor evolve. All of us, not just the indigenous community, live and breathe our history every day. I mean, how, how dare this guy Sinclair say such a thing that is quite racist when you're throwing it back at other people who aren't asking you to go and look at their hist- histories. You want to know, know about my European history? You want to know how I came to this country? Want to know about the people who oppressed my people? You want to know about the people who murdered my grandfather? No, you don't care. I'm supposed to care about you. I'm sorry. I, I have no pity for this. This is, this is a self-inflicted problem. And the people who are promoting this stuff want to keep the problem the way it is. If there's a significant history to be examined, it is that of Western culture's history and how it was possible to escape the poverty, the despair, and hopelessness of the collective to create a society where it was possible for each and every individual, regardless of all the BS everyone is consumed with, to truly determine his or her own destiny to the greatest degree possible. Never happened before. And this story is now out of Winnipeg, CTV Winnipeg, And the headline reads, Constitutional Rights Group backs Star Trek fan whose Assimilate license plate was banned, and it ran on July 12th. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom says MPI's decision violates Troller's freedom of expression. The organization's founder, John Carpe, tells CTV News that whenever there's a conflict between the right to express oneself and the right not to be offended, government ought to come down on the side of free expression. The Justice Center says it will be filing paperwork to bring the case to court after the MPI refused their request to return Trawler's license plate. According to MPI's policy, license plates can't contain words, phrases, or innuendos that, quote, may be considered offensive, end quote, as the plates are the property of the crown. That's a very important point, by the way. Well, either the reporters in this story on CTV have it wrong or carpe, himself was a bit inconsistent with the language and has consequently directly contradicted himself. In referring to a conflict between the right of expression and the right not to be offended, he has acknowledged that the right to be offended is a valid right, after having just argued in the previous media report that this second right is a phony one. If such a thing actually existed... I could personally sue every major paper, major politician, major newscaster, talk show host for precisely doing that to me, offending me. 
I get offended every day when I turn on the radio. When I hear, when I read the editorials in the paper, they are offensive. And the, and the stuff I'm going to be covering the rest of the show today, I find offensive. A world in which such a right existed would be a hellhole because at the top of any list of groups or interests that do not tolerate being offended are politicians and governments. Hello. And they got guns. The force of law, everything they do is based on the application of force by one interest group against another. Now, I don't know which way Carpe's case will go on this one, because this is not about freedom of speech per se. There's no freedom to put whatever you want on a Saskatchewan license plate, since all such plates, under law, are the property of the Crown. And, I mean, their policy was explicit and clear. They can prohibit anything on the grounds of offensiveness, even if such offense is merely a possibility. If Carpe wins the case, it certainly will not be a win for freedom of speech in any meaningful way, I think. It'll be won because of the negative publicity and because it makes most Canadians ridicule and laugh at what lies at the root of such thinking, you know, the, the whole multiculturalism thing. In her article, When Resisting is Not Futile, Christy Blatchford in the August 2nd National Post reported that, quote, to this, I'd suggest that if being triggered by a license plate that clearly refers to Star Trek as a genuine concern for Indigenous Canadians, then they are approaching that lucky state where life is sufficiently easy that you can worry deeply about words and feelings. And that can't be true, given the shameful number of Indigenous citizens who must still boil their water before drinking it, or who live in substandard housing, or whose families continue to suffer the effects of residential schools. End quote. Well, you know, everybody's talking about whether this license plate referred to Star Trek. Who cares? What if the word assimilate was aimed at all the minority communities who insist on isolating themselves from the greater community? By the choice of those who are isolating themselves. I have been publicly calling for the indigenous communities to assimilate into Western culture. Because if preserving any of the cultures or customs or history of any of these groups is, is truly their intention then to be assimilated under the umbrella of what has come to be called Western culture is their best bet, especially for being able to determine their own cultural choices and, and their futures. You know, one thing about that incidents like this point out to me is that from within so many of the minority racial groups that anyone who is white are supposed to embrace as part of our multiculture, there's a deep hatred and resentment and outright refusal, quite frankly, to assimilate with even that silly idea of multiculturalism that Trudeau keeps talking about. You know, there's some inconvenient truths here. One is that all native, aboriginal, indigenous reservations, call them what you like, in the country, are entirely race-determined. So let's not keep pretending that race doesn't matter, that we're a, you know, a country free of racism. There it sits. It's the whole and single and entire and exclusive issue behind the whole Aboriginal cultural divide that is being fostered and encouraged by leaders within both the Aboriginal community and our own community. And I've touched on this so many times in the past, I'm just sick of talking about it. Nothing has changed or moved since I first addressed an official committee on this, way back in the 90s, I think it was. And you know what the greatest of all ironies is about this whole assimilate license plate story, as told in the media? Is that no one has seen the sheer stupidity, blindness, and outrageous irony of an Aboriginal person or group objecting to someone displaying the assimilate word in a Star Trek context. 
Hello, have you ever watched Star Trek? (laughs) The folks in Star Trek felt the same way about being assimilated as apparently does the complainant. It was the same fear. Though, of course, I think these people who, who, who don't want to be assimilated would, without a care or a thought in the world, likely assimilate everyone around them if they were given the power to do so and, and assimilate them to their culture. Moreover, as distinct from a free democracy, Aboriginal culture is tribal, just like the Borg culture. As a tribal collectivist society, hypocritically pretending to disengage itself from the Western cultures and values around it, the very cultures and values that did not force them to assimilate, did not engage in genocide, but now have gone so far as to subsidize entirely a culture that would not exist without such support. You know, there's no such thing as a multicultural society. If you have multicultural, then you have many societies, not one. Any single society or culture has to be defined by, by that single common value that's shared by all within the grouping. Split that up and you no longer have a culture based on whatever value was abandoned. Western culture is a culture of the right, not of the left. Aboriginal cultures, being both collectivist and tribal in nature, are completely a phenomenon of the left in modern political terminology, but they wouldn't have looked at it that way. In leftist cultures, assimilation is indeed something to be feared. In cultures of the right, assimilation is the very reason why millions emigrated to this continent, and my family was among them. They wanted to be assimilated under an umbrella of protection of life, liberty, and property, the three things that were never protected in their countries of origin, where assimilation always meant assimilation under the umbrella of a forced collective in which the individual was subservient to the state. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the U.S. We have analyzed your defensive capabilities as being unable to withstand us. If you defend yourselves, you will be punished. Hmm. Counselor. We're not dealing with an individual mind. They don't have a single leader. It's the collective minds of all of them. That would have definite advantages. Yes, a single leader can make mistakes, which is far less likely in the combined whole. experience of the human. Picard is part of us now. It has prepared us for all possible courses of action. That may be their Achilles heel, Captain. Their interdependency. What do you mean, Doctor? He's part of their collective consciousness now. Cutting him off would be like asking one of us to disconnect an arm or a foot. We can't do it. They operate as a single mind. One of them jumps off a cliff, they all jump off. Well, just look at them jump. (laughs) Here we have members of an individualist culture, the Federation, talking about how a collective mind has advantages of not making mistakes when the very fact of being Borg is about as big a mistake as you could possibly make. You see how there's no value attached to these decisions because it's all about efficiency. They're They're talking like conservatives and libertarians. No one has a life in the collective. They merely exist, just like in human collectives. Now, it's very coincidental that this next particular item 
should have caught my attention at this time because of a movie I watched, perhaps for the fourth or fifth time just recently, about which I'll say more later, which very much relates to this report out of Los Angeles written by Lindsay Barr of the Associated Press and which appeared in the London Free Press this past August 4th. I think it's another example of just how racist and phobic about identity politics the intellectual environment in which we live really has become. Here's the headline, front page. Study finds little diversity in Hollywood. And out of Los Angeles, the article reads, In 2016, Moonlight won the best picture, and Hidden Figures was the 14th highest grossing picture of the year. But popular Hollywood films remained as white and male-dominated as ever. A new report from the Media Diversity and Social Change Initiative at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism finds the representation of women, minorities, LGBT people, disabled characters in films remains largely unchanged from the previous year despite the heightened attention to diversification in Hollywood. For nine years, since 2007, USC has analyzed the demographic makeup of every speaking or named character from each year's 100 highest grossing films at the domestic box office, as well as behind-the-camera employment for those films. Every year, we're hopeful we will actually see change, said Stacy L. Smig, a USC professor and the study's lead author. Unfortunately, that hope has not quite been realized. And here they present the numbers. Numbers of interest from analysis of 4,583 speaking characters in the top 100 films of 2016. Well, there were 76 films with no LGBT characters. Imagine that. There were 72 films with no Hispanic female characters. 70.8 was the percentage of white characters. 66 films with no Asian female characters. 47 films with no black female characters, 44 films with no Asian characters, 34 films depicting a female lead or co-lead, 31.4 percentage of females, 25 films without a black character in a speaking role, 13.6 the percentage of black characters, 5.7 the percentage of Asian characters, 5 female directors, 3.1 the percentage of Hispanic characters, Three, female characters from underrepresented groups, and unnamed, I might add. 2.7, characters depicted as disabled. Boy, one of them must have really been disabled if it's 2.7. Surely they meant that as a percentage, but that's not how they printed it. (laughs) And 1.3, the percentage of American Indian and Alaska Native characters. Didn't even know you were allowed to use those words anymore. And zero, black female directors. End quote. I don't know exactly where to start with this one, other than to begin with the fact that these statistical facts (laughs) are meaningless, other than as evidence of the bias of the writers and of the researchers. First, it's openly and explicitly racist, or at least about identity politics. The vast majority of the stats about movies, no less, are racial. Evidently, what the movies are about, you know, like the story or something like that, is secondary. (laughs) And... All the stats are presented in a very negative way, did you notice? Unless it's about white people. For example, they say 72 films with no Hispanic female characters. They don't say 28 films with Hispanic female characters, which seems, you know, kind of high, given the demographics of the country and the greater market, right? 
And of course, they mix percentages with absolute numbers and positives with negatives. Again, they cite that 70.8% of these movies featured white characters. They did not say that 29.2% of these movies did not feature white characters. Right? Of course, none of these are lies or false news, just BS. BS used to disguise the always hidden racist, sexist, anti-white agenda, an agenda shared by more whites than non-whites, I have to point out, in my experience. Then there's the stats themselves. You know, they went and picked the highest grossest film, films, which, by that category alone, would appeal to the widest racial demographic for Hollywood movies. In North America, that would naturally be white people. You know, when they say every year we're hopeful that we'll actually see change and unfortunately it hasn't been realized, well, that's a racist wish. I don't know why you would want to wish that. There's no necessity for it. There's no, there's nothing for it. Clearly, racists have no sense of quality or content of the material being assessed. The story is irrelevant to them. You know, they want to foist their demographic fictions onto the story and who cares about the story? What if the story's not about any of the groups you want to talk about? That's what's going to happen. I mean, if you're looking for more diversity in the racial makeup of the people who appear on the screen, or, you know, of the TV shows you watch, then you're every bit as much a racist as those who want to see racial groups excluded from appearing on the screen. How's one different from the other? I think tokenism is well regarded by some as worse than exclusion. This study has already severely skewed the stats by picking the top 100 movies and not the tens of thousands of movies, films, and TV shows that are not so categorized. I'll let you odds that the top 100 movies in India probably feature, you know, Indians. And the top 100 movies in China, I'm guessing they're probably mostly Chinese. Can you possibly figure out the reason for that? <laughs> wow. If anything, North American theater and entertainment is overrepresented when it comes to so-called minority groups. Again, the code word for non-white, but who cares, right? In North America, whoever wants to make a movie can. And if it doesn't make it to the top 100, well, that has no bearing whatever on the racial makeup of the film or of the audience's prejudices. You want to know why most, though not all, movies make it to the top? It's because they're good movies, and the audiences like them at least in the eyes of those who attend them. When, when the number one movie of the year features black main characters, I mean, any talk of underrepresentation isn't even plausible. It's irrelevant. It means that their color does not matter, and once that has been achieved, equality reigns. But this is not what these folks are after. Here again, we have an example of facts being used to promote an agenda, not to convey a true story nor even an interesting or relevant one. Which brings me back to that movie I mentioned recently watching, and here things might get a little complicated, especially for those collecting racial stats. The movie of which I speak is called Slow Burn, and it stars a predominantly black cast. I discovered the film, as I so often do, by checking out the acting careers of certain actors I've seen in other shows I've watched, in this case, I irony again, from the Star Trek world. And I'm, and I'm speaking of Star Trek Enterprise's Jolene Blaylock, whom I did not realize at all for several years is actually biracial. And I always assumed she was white, and I'm bringing all of these points up because they're very relevant to everything else about this story. 
Most people know of Jolene Blaylock as the Vulcan character sub-commander to Paul from the Star Trek Enterprise series. But in the movie Slow Burn, whose title I'm sure is not unrelated to skin color, Blaylock is far more black than white. And I wondered if Jolene Blaylock's appearance in Slow Burn, if it had made it to the top 100, would have presented as much of a problem to the researchers who collected all the racial stats about who appeared in what movie as her biracial character presented a problem to the other characters in the movie and the story. Now, it was only in preparation for today's show that I discovered what I'm about to share with you about this movie, Slow Burn, which I've had in my collection for several years, and which I personally enjoy more each time I watch it. And then suddenly a real story emerged, one concerned with the news item I just shared. For example, Wikipedia reported that Slow Burn, and here's a movie I like, okay, so I'm not surprised that everybody else hates it, was released in American theaters on April 13, 2007, but performed poorly. It had an opening weekend of only $700,000 in ticket sales and closed two weeks later with a domestic total of 1200000 blah, blah, blah. Anyways, it ranks among the top 10 widely released films for, for having the biggest second weekend drop at the box office, okay? The DVD was released in North America on July 24, 2007, and sold 44,000 units, and translating to a revenue of 800,000. So the film has themes of interracial dating, passing or pretending to be a member of another race, stereotypes included, and using a rape defense to the accusation of murder. Uh, not exactly an accurate description of the show. But that slow burn should receive such dismal theater ratings was no surprise to me. Although race is a critical element throughout the film, this movie does not play the race card in any way that would fit anyone's political agenda. One movie review summarized the film this way, quote, A district attorney is involved in a 24-hour showdown with a gang leader and is, at the same time, being manipulated by an attractive assistant district attorney and a cryptic stranger. End quote. There you go. <laughs> directed by Wayne Beach, who also wrote the screenplay and the story, and uh, did a good job, I thought. Stars Ray Liotta and Jolene Blaylock, LL Cool J. And one of the other actors I recognized was Chuitel Iji Ofor. I hope I pronounced that right, because I had to go online to look that up, because it's spelled C-H-I-W-E-T-E-L-E-J-I-O-F-O-R. And I recognized him as the operative in the Firefly movie release, Serenity, in 2005. And there was something hauntingly similar about his role in Slow Burn, which Wikipedia goes on to describe as a story that, boy, did they ever make it boring. They're talking about how the movie begins with Nora Trimmer, played by Jolene Blaylock, a biracial woman, being questioned by the district attorney. There's a lot of plot going on here. And they got two long paragraphs here. And I have to tell you, that's not the movie I saw. It was the plot. You can go on Wikipedia and read the plot yourself. Everything there is accurate. But it's not the story. You know, right now, just after having reviewed that and reading that other one, I'm saying to myself, what? Did all that stuff go on? And yes, it did. It's quite factual. But it misses the whole point of what the movie was about. And none of it was interesting outside the context of the film's major theme, which I saw no reviewers mention. <laughs> How ironic. Because here, in this day and political age of identity politics, Slow Burn was all about identity. 
But the politics of the movie was not. All of the reviews and pans of Slow Burn I saw were just like the news media who can't tell the good guys from the bad guys and who missed the whole real story from all the fake news swirling around Donald Trump to the media's own manufactured narrative about Bill Cosby that we discussed last week. It's always a left and right issue. Finally, a show about race that wasn't about racial conflict because all of the various racial characters got along with each other. It wasn't like that. None of them were poor. They were all relatively middle class. But it was about a deep and compelling mystery about just who this person being played by Jolene Blaylock really was and on whose side was she really. And the twists and turns in this story continue right to the closing scenes. And if you aren't keeping your eye on the ball, you could just get caught in the shell game of hidden identities and perhaps finding yourself aiding and abetting your enemy. It's certainly no James Bond thriller or action-type movie, if that's what you're looking for. And if that's what audiences were expecting, they would have been disappointed. This is a movie for the mind. Slow Burn is in many ways about a slow realization that all is not exactly as it seems. And viewers get to see the same mystery told by different characters with differing views on what they've seen. And that, for me, was the fun of the experience. Here's a taste of a conversation from that film that could well have been years before its time, especially when we listen into the topic of conversation. So now he knows what the $500 car rides are for. But why is she so interested in real estate? He's got a lot of questions on his mind and not a lot of answers. She takes a shower. So my man starts looking around. During the night, she told him her mom is the cocoa and daddy's the milk. She's biracial, so what? That's the thing. Nobody in her family looks any darker than Celine Dion after a bad day at the beach. My man's thinking, maybe there's some Mediterranean in her blood. But the closest her family's been to Africa is Whitney Houston's greatest hits. Keeps his little secret. She wants to be a wigger. That's cool. Why would a white woman want to be black? Why would a Jerry want to be a Geraldine? You got an explanation for that? Looking for the soul. They weren't born with. You know what I'm smelling? You smell it, Chet? As a DA, you become a connoisseur of it because you smell it every waking hour of the day. And I'm smelling a sampler platter. Nora Timmer won an award from the NAACP. This one day, I went to see my cousin, right? She owns a beauty parlor on West National. There she was. Mariah Carey herself, smelling like mango. Word, her hair's got a kink, but not at the roots. The law needs us. It's the time to be a sister. Juries on inner city crimes are 60% black. They need blacks prosecuting. That makes her DA bait. Her sister's gonna rise. But I don't think any of that matters to her. You see, puppies, I think you got a head job in there who thinks she is black. What's the matter?
can't imagine someone leaving the race of Regis Philbin for that of Michael Jordan. know about Nora Timmer. Tell me what you know, Jeffrey. Danny used to call her a trick of light. Depending on how the light would hit her, she almost looked like a sister. She was right out of law school already clerking for your office. She was working the clubs for information on a gang drive-by when she met a guy who called himself Leon. If she needed an inside edge, Leon could provide, and did. She came back for more, not caring how or why Leon knew so much, because he was giving her something else. Authenticity. They were lovers. Well, for a while, it wasn't until she saw the deference with which others treated Leon that she realized Leon's Danny. He knew there was something twisted about that girl. But it was cool, because, uh, Daddy likes Twisted. First he thought she was a sister trying to be white. You know, Michael Jackson, nose job, that sort of thing. Then he started thinking it was the other way around. Maybe she's like the kid from California who joined the Taliban. Did it to shit on everything she was raised to be. Betray her own. So, he decides to help her. He gives her so much edge, she high jumps to prosecutor of gang crimes. She prosecutes his enemies. He even tosses her an occasional omen. You didn't make a gang prosecutor. Danny did. She gave him gifts. Tupac's cigarette lighter. Six grand at Sotheby's. His lizard dies, she gives him a new one. It's a chameleon. Perfect camouflage. She tells him to learn the lesson of the chameleon. If his organization is to grow, it has to be all colors. Reds, browns, blacks, whites, and yellows. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And we'd like to thank our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. You can visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there sample some of our timeless past broadcasts. Now what we just heard was a couple of scenes from Slow Burn that would surely lead you to believe that the movie was all about race. But it was no such thing. Race was merely a key in solving the mystery of the real identity of the chameleon being played by Jolene Blaylock. And the ending would surprise you. It's not a film you can really watch passively. You have to pay attention because the action is in the dialogue and relationships between the characters. Yet this film did poorly at the box office and would never have made the survey of Hollywood diversity that we just talked about. It was a money loser. Incidentally, another big money loser that features a black main character was The Adventures of Pluto Nash. Its black lead was Eddie Murphy. And it was my understanding that this film, too, was among the biggest money losers in movie history up to its time. So, all-time loser. Uh, So that one wouldn't have made it onto the survey either. But you know what? That movie, too, was a good movie within the genre it was intended for. 
generally mild family entertainment, you know, in the guise of a space adventure on the moon. It was a lot of fun, and it was and it was very expensively made, and you could see that they would have had to make a lot of money to pull their money back out of that one. I did not like Slow Burn because it starred mostly black actors. I liked it because it was a great and unusual story, unlike anything I can say I've seen anywhere else. There were hints of, like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, as well as a touch of, you know, that 1940 style of narrative that you hear when people are giving differing accounts of the same events, demonstrating again that facts alone do not tell the story. And I've kept away completely from being a spoiler to the dramatic event that occurs near the end of the film and which reveals the intentions of many of the protagonists. Although the plot resolved itself clearly, I have my own thoughts about why the main character kept changing her own racial identity. And one of the final scenes somewhat affirms it you know, one of those minor mysteries just that just might motivate me to watch the movie again. I've changed my mind two or three times about it. But if my consciousness could even for a moment have drifted to a racial count of the characters in the film, well, that's taking social justice to the point of doing an injustice to the film's storyline and integrity, you know? Just as with real life, One's judgment of a movie or work of art, I think, demands a certain sense of real justice, never social justice. The left needs to start critiquing Islamism, not defending it, read the headline over the editorial July 21st in the Toronto Sun, commentary written by Farzana Hassan. Now, my first question when I saw that headline was, why would the left even consider doing such a thing? I mean, on... on, On what possible grounds would anyone think that the left would share any common values with the right? Now, Farzana has the right idea and the right intention, but has killed that idea by using the language of the left, words which do not correspond to reality, to reason, or to the law of identity, and a whole host of considerations that make those concepts invalid. So here's what she says in her article, and I quote, A number of Facebook pages, such as Countering Social Justice, Hegemony, and Let's Talk About Islamism, have recently emerged that address the concerns of those opposing all religious fundamentalism, particularly Islamism. I say particularly because that movement poses a unique and significant threat to the values that the West has long fought to establish. It is also a wider threat because Islamists are organized and their efforts are concerted. One threatened value is the right to express oneself in open debate without fear of retribution. The threat is not just from Islamists themselves. The liberal left also cries blasphemy or Islamophobia whenever fundamentalist practices are questioned. This serves to quash legitimate debate and stymie any chance of reforming traditional practices that marginalize many within these communities. All sane Canadians advocate social justice, but social justice cannot be achieved through an outlook predicated on moral relativism. The quest for social justice needs to be very delicately calibrated in order to achieve it for all, not just for the Islamists who have support from the liberal left, but also for those they oppress. Social justice is a noble goal, and all citizens of this great country must strive to achieve it for every citizen. However, it must be sought with respect for everyone's rights, keeping in view that what some groups seek is not universal justice, but partisan repression. 
The liberal left, the traditional self-proclaimed social justice warriors, must understand that debate about certain religious and cultural practices is only an effort to achieve social justice for those within these communities who have no voice. The greatest opponents of social equity are the ones the left defends. It is only by providing a forum for debate that more odious manifestations of resentment can be avoided. End quote. Well, that debate is not going to resolve anything with that term social justice floating around it all over the place. That's a dangerous word. It's killing everything. No definition, no clear language stating what is actually meant by social justice, etc. It's a collectivist term. The term social justice, and we've talked about it before, it's an anti-concept created by the left to destroy the real concept of justice. Hello? Justice only applies to, to individuals, since only individuals have the capacity for responsibility. Justice is about holding individuals responsible for their actions under an objective set of laws administered through an objective, proven process of justice. Group justice, that's a contradiction in terms. It should never be used by any advocates of what is right, and certainly not by anyone who's trying to criticize the left. And that's exactly what Farzana Hassan in her July 21st editorially, you know, tragically did. Failing to observe the law of identity, you know, she should check out Slow Burn. What the left itself truly represent, represents, she's pleading like with the fox in the hen house to declare himself equal to the chickens. You know, she says social justice, not just for the Islamists, but also for those they oppress. <laughs> we can have social justice for the oppressed and the oppressors. I would propose to Ms. Hassan that the oppression of some groups by other groups is precisely what social justice is in practice. It is, you know, it's the social justice warriors of the left who are first in line to stop any debate that challenges their non-sequiturs and their sinister objectives. And, and putting adjectives in front of words that already have a clear meaning serves only one purpose, to destroy the meaning of the thing being described by the adjective. It's concept destruction. You know, like, like new freedom. Well, how's that different from the old freedom? Or from just freedom? New Democrat. How's the new democracy different from the old democracy? Social justice? How does social justice differ from justice? You wouldn't be using that term if it wasn't different. So here's my own dilemma with Ms. Hassan's editorial. I kind of agree and would support her basic message and premise and thesis, but I think she's doing irreparable harm to her own message by using that terrible term, social justice, let alone pretending to support it. And that problem came through loud and clear in her editorial. Social justice, if you think about it, would demand that another phony concept be created, namely social rights, which is in and of itself yet another epistemological irony of definitions, isn't it? Because here's the joke. There are no social rights. There are only individual rights. Individual rights are a social concept. They're not some kind of concept just taken out of context that you can do whatever you want as an individual that operates in some kind of vacuum devoid of any consciousness of the other. Individual rights were politically born of the group. It's like Salim Mansour says, the we precedes the I, right? which is the unique relationship between the individual and the state that only Western cultures ever managed to approach. So individual rights as a social concept evolved from the collective, 
and provides a code of conduct by which every human individual is expected to abide in order to experience the highest reward possible in political terms. Your individual freedom. Your freedom from the will of the other. Your freedom from someone else imposing his or her values on you without your consent. That's exactly what each and every person on the left is calling for. It ain't freedom. It's not a new freedom. and It's not social justice. Individual rights are the corollary of individual responsibility. The most feared concept and in, in the modern political lexicon, which seeks to make all matters of the day-to-day life, you know, one of group rights and group responsibilities. And once you're back in the collective, well, welcome to life on the reservation, a place where individual rights are reserved for no one, the jurisdiction of social justice. I mean, we just reviewed example of calls for social justice via that statistical article on the movie's actor's racial makeup. That's part of what what all that was about. Social justice concepts view inequities, you know, like inequities of income, of status, of health care, of education, of heritage. I mean, you name it. They're all evil. Yep, yep. Got to be resolved politically. And that just leads to political chaos. (laughs) Welcome to Big Talk, your weekly gullet full of the massively important. I'm Raymond Terrific, and as usual, gathered around me are about the biggest bunch of eggheads and brainiacs that taxis can be sent to fetch. And together, we're going to be thrashing out some absolutely colossal issues. Right, first up, AIDS pandemic in Africa. Come on, boffins, let's sort this out once and for all. What do we reckon, Richard? Uh, Well, as usual, Raymond, you've raised an absolutely huge question. Of course I have, Richard, this is Big Talk. (laughs) Let's get this sorted once and for all. Uh, Well, I I think the root of the problem is in education. Right, send more. Sleeves rolled up, ships full of schools. Is that the answer, Leonard? Uh, no, I don't think so. Right, cancel the school ships. Come on, boffins, let's really bang our heads together on this one. Um, if I could just... Yes, Danielle, you're about the biggest boffin here. Sort these guys out and let's stop the dying if we can just about be bothered. Well, I think it's less about education and more about money. Money, right, they need money. OK, how much money, Tim? Well, it's how much money, Tim, to get this sorted? <laughs> Leonard! <laughs> Boffins! Uh, 700 billion pounds? Oh, no, that's enormous! Where are we gonna find that? Come on, Boffins, work it out. Right, I've got a house worth 300k. So, 700 billion minus 300. Oh, we are nowhere near! Right, okay, get some pizza in. Speed dial three. We're gonna crack this if it takes all night! I'm afraid, sir, we still have a problem with Detective Harrison. Yes, Mr. Harrison has an irritating talent for disrupting my arrangements. Would you like me to have him... removed? Yes, perhaps. Perhaps it would be better if Mr. Harrison were taken out of the picture. Sorry, guys, you're doing it again. What, Alan? Have him removed. Take him out of the picture. I thought we agreed at the meeting that these terms are needlessly ambiguous. I suppose. We all agreed that from now on, when we want someone murdered, i.e. deliberately killed to death, then that's what we're going to say. Look, everyone knows what we mean. Well, on this occasion, perhaps. I mean, that was an order to murder Detective Harrison, right? He has become a nuisance. (laughs) 
Right, but a nuisance we should murder. Is that it? I mean, my nephew's a nuisance, but... You see what I mean? Yes. Yeah, all right. Well, can you say it then, please? Okay. Please deal with the Harrison situation. You see, that's no good. Oh, that was perfectly clear. Oh, what are you talking about, Keith? This is going to be, let's hope Professor Ritson meets with a little accident all over again. We spent nine months hoping that Professor Ritson would meet with an accident before Leslie made it clear it was an accident we were supposed to make happen. All right, you've made your point. You two get on with your work now. Oh, murdering? Yes. Oh, and Alan. Perhaps I'll see you later for a little light refreshment. Do you mean anal sex? Yes. All right. They speak in strange codes and terms so as to disguise their true intentions. Like the following writer of this truly representative horror file of our political environment. You know, Ayn Rand used to have these articles she would talk about every once in a while that she called her horror file. Well, this one is written by Celine Cooper, special to the Montreal Gazette, on July 28th. Let's ensure gender parity in politics isn't just a fad. Well, this scares the hell out of me, what I read in this. I mean, this is, this is right up there. This is truly a horror story. Listen to this. Last week, the NDP in British Columbia sworn into government after 18 years in opposition. Newly minted Premier John Horgan unveiled the first gender parity cabinet in the province's history. The May 9th election was also the first time that a major, major party in the province had, get this, run more females than male candidates. This did not happen organically. The gender balance was accomplished through an equity policy that required retiring male incumbents to be replaced by candidates who are female, indigenous, visible minorities, disabled, or LGBTQ. I could just leave the rest of the show silent and let you think about that for a minute. Shall we have a moment of silence for this country? Controversial, she writes, no doubt. Controversial. Somebody's threatening to kill you and it's just a, an opinion on the other person's side. But the real commitment to gender parity in Canadian politics requires long-term strategy with teeth. That's a gun. She's talking about a gun. Okay, this is how fascists talk. They don't use the language of what they really mean. She's like those guys in the joke we just heard, and it isn't a joke. Quote, equity policies pegged to recruitment at the writing level can help political parties start off with a balanced slate of candidates. Oh my God, this is animalistic. I, I, I just read this stuff and I'm going, am I in cartoon land? Now get this. Expect this conversation to crop up at the provincial level in Quebec over the coming months. In June, Premier Philip Couillard announced plans to present a gender-balanced team of candidates to run under the Liberal banner during the 2018 election. During the 2014 general election, women made up 30% of the candidates. But without a policy in place, he's got a lot of work to do, she writes. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau set a federal precedent by naming the first gender parity cabinet in Canadian history after the Liberals were elected in 2015. The decision attracted widespread praise in Canada and around the world. Since then, it has become increasingly common for political leaders like B.C.'s Horgan to acknowledge the importance of gender equity and diversity at various levels of government. But there have been missed opportunities to keep the momentum going. A year after they came to power, the Liberals rejected a private member's bill that would have further entrenched a federal commitment to gender equity. Bill C-237 would have financially penalized political parties that did not run a nearly equal number of male and female candidates. Shall we have another moment of silence? <laughs> I can't believe it. This would have been an incentive to parties to seek out better gender balance at the riding level. While the bill garnered unanimous NDP backing, it received no conservative support and only 23 liberal votes. I should hope so. Shouldn't have received any support. You know, she says all this matters because the case against gender quotas usually rides on an argument of merit. But let's put to bed the notion that political correctness is running roughshod over meritocracy. Women are not underrepresented in government because they don't deserve to be there. Many people face structural barriers to getting involved in party-based politics. Merit and quotas are not mutually exclusive. Oh, in fact, many researchers have argued that quotas under an equity policy can bolster meritocratic systems by opening up politics to everyone. Equity policies can help to ensure that gender parity in politics becomes the norm rather than the exception, end quote. Oh, gee, I'm sitting here in shock. This, this, this is the worst thing I've read since I found out we're not allowed to associate with our own members here in Ontario. You see how fascism is coming to Canada? We're completely fascist, and the people who are all the big fascists, they're proudly waving their fascist flags. Where, 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 where is a swastika? This is so evil an idea that every person in Canada should be recoiling at this thought. Celine Cooper should be made the poster girl for sexist fascisms, fascists right across the country. She's a BS artist from the word get-go, no different than those contract killers in that Mitchell and Webb comedy skit we heard. Where do I start on this one? I'll tell you. Merit and quotas are not mutually exclusive, she says. Bull! Of course they're mutually exclusive. I'd like to see her define each of them and then, then tell us how they're the same. Just like left and right, quotas are force. Merit is voluntarism. Quotas are the unearned. Merit is the earned. Anyone who suggests that these are the same thing is, is a person who's evil to the core. You know, that's what evil looks like in reality. It's, it's all nice people talking about their values. Ideas that kill people with a smile on their face. This didn't happen organically, she writes. <laughs> in other words... No one freely chose to make it so. It was forced upon everybody by a few. And they have to worry about the haphazard demographics of how all the other competing candidates might happen to tabulate with regard to their sexually organic qualifications before going into an election. So think about it. No individual under such a dictatorship could ever plan in the future any kind of career in politics because you'd never know how many people of what sex might be running when you decide to run? That's going to be half of the factor. The other factor is your penis or your vagina. Ideas in politics? The things we talk about on this show, left and right? These people don't talk. They are those things. 
these are these people are outside of the thought process. They're like a storm coming, and they're in danger. Anyone on the left? Gender quotas, good grief, what an anti-democratic idea in the extreme. Talk about offensive. If there's one clear message that comes out of these policies and messages advocated by gender equity policies, I hate to say it, it's that in politics, well, first, men are preferred to women, by both women and men voters, it's obvious, because we're all free to vote. Gender quotas also confirm that women are inferior in whatever area the quota is being enforced. Gender quotas also suggest that men and women have entirely different political interests, which, if true, would doom our society to extinction. I mean, if the policies you're voting for are being picked because of the sexual organs between your legs, you shouldn't be in public office. All voters in the jurisdictions in which gender parity exists, they no longer have a free and democratic choice. Don't, don't fool yourself. They don't even live in a democracy anymore, no matter how much it appears to be contrary. These policies are, are an obscenity to any free-thinking human being. For all intents and purposes, those elections have been fixed. They're fixed so as not to reflect the will of the electorate. End of story. It's so obvious, it's not funny. And I haven't even heard of this. How did this not make international news around the world? And Canadians have the nerve to laugh at Donald Trump and the Americans? When we have elections being run like this? Wow. Gender equity policies also make it clear that the gender being made equal did not earn that status. And the person who was displaced by the policy also suffers a great injustice. But the left doesn't care about any kind of justice. Justice is the last thing on earth that the left is looking for. They want social justice. Justice for some social group. Injustice for another. Individuals are mere incidentals. So are you starting to see the big picture here? We don't have a race problem. We have a political crisis. From our arts and culture to our political culture, we're living in a racist, sexist, fascist state that has ceased having anything in common with the principles of a free and democratic society. You can't function as a democracy with this kind of thinking going on. The injustice and fascism of the left is what our future will continue to be until more of the right people Choose to support the parity that is just right. The parity of individual rights. The equality of all individuals before and under the law. The good news is that anyone can turn to what is right simply by making the choice to be just right. And if you're not quite sure what that might mean, you can start by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then... Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hi there, concerned voter. Put her there. I don't think I know you. Oh, of course you do. I just said, hi there, concerned voter. Put her there. I represent Nelson Flavor. <laughs> You're uh, new here, aren't you? You know, that's an interesting concept. Let's talk about that. Let's rap. Let's share energy. All right. Welcome to our meeting. I'm Jim Blake. I'm Mark Blank. I represent Nelson Flavor. Nelson Flavor. Who's he? He's a concerned politician, as you can see right here, who thinks that Boulder should be cleaned up whichever which way you want. Uh, uh, Jim? Excuse me, fellow. Not interesting here. Yeah, what is it? 
I don't know about this guy. Leave him to me, Prescott. <laughs> this, uh, politician friend of yours, he got a lot of influence? Well, he will when he has more groups like yours backing him. Labor. Good American name. Tell me, what does he think of the race problem? He believes that he should be ahead of everybody else. <laughs> well, that's what we believe. Yes, yes, you see, we're a white bread group. And we think there's too much rye and pumpernickel in the world. When you're like Nelson, he's well-bred and he's no crumb. 